0: From the Gospel according to Luke and chapter 11, this time, page 1197. And uh, in the passage, we read the Lord is responding to an accusation, and that he is actually in league with the devil. And that the power he is exercising is a power that he has received from the devil. And in verse 17, we read But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God... And I think that is a reference to his own finger when he would perform the miracles. Then surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted And divides his spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest, and finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept. And put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Again, we pray the blessing of God on the reading of his own word. Uh, Now, with a view to God's help, let's... uh, turn to the text that we were looking at uh, this morning in John chapter 19 and verse 30. So the gospel according to John, again in the church Bible, that's page 1248. John chapter 20. And verse 30, verse 30, so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Of course, bowing his head implies that he had raised his head in order to utter these words. So, it is finished. Now, um, we began our study of this text this morning, and we saw the cry as a cry of accomplishment. The Savior isn't so much uh, crying out that something is over, but crying out that something has been completed, or accomplished, and although it's described in the text as one thing, singular, it is finished, or it is accomplished, it's very clear just a few verses before that, that many things have now been accomplished. In verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now, same word in the Greek language, finished or accomplished that the scripture might be fulfilled said i thirst so many things all things are accomplished at this point and last of all as we saw they were accomplished by the lord jesus christ himself you'll remember that christ is quoting when he says it is finished He is quoting from the end of Psalm 22, where his own people in generations to come are saying, he finished it, he has done it, or he has accomplished it. And reciting the psalm on the cross, the Lord then affirms it by raising his head and saying, it is finished, or I have finished it. So I have accomplished all things is really inside these words, it is finished. Yes, it is finished, but I have accomplished all things. Now, we began in the morning to answer the very obvious question, what things did the Lord accomplish? What does he see himself at this very point, just when he is about to expire on the cross, what is it that he sees himself as accomplishing? And we saw that, first of all, uh, taking an overview of it, he has accomplished his own life. He hasn't simply lived his life, he has accomplished it. In other words, his life had a great goal and a great purpose, and he fulfilled it. And I hope we saw the importance of emulating him in that respect too, making sure that our own lives have a goal and that we fulfill it. Our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We do that by obeying him and offering him our worship. If we do so, we can reflect back on a life lived as Paul did when he said that, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, and I have kept the faith. But as I said in closing this morning, that takes us A little bit further and deeper because what did it really involve for Christ to accomplish his life you can view that from several perspectives because there were several things that he had to accomplish looked at as individual strands in his life so let's take them uh, just one by one I'm not pretending that this is exhaustive Uh, But nonetheless, perhaps, it maps out the whole ground, even if we don't see it in detail. First of all, he accomplished a perfect obedience. He accomplished a perfect obedience. If his goal was to do the will of God, just as ours is to do the will of God, he did it perfectly, as we never will. In fact, he is the only man who ever did this and the only man who ever will. That's quite a thought. When you think that the whole of mankind ever has had the duty of obeying God perfectly, only one person ever did and ever will, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's important to note When he exclaims, I have done this or I have finished it, that he obeyed his father perfectly, despite enormous pressure to the contrary. And we're to understand that being involved because the exclamation of accomplishment in connection with obedience is a kind of relief even to the Holy Son of God. We're told in the scripture that he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. I know that that expression mystifies us. It especially, I think, mystifies perhaps uh, young Christians or those who are young in the faith. But he learned obedience doesn't mean that he was disobedient first and had to learn how to be obedient. That's not what it means at all. The word learned there means experienced. He experienced obedience as he went on in life through suffering. In other words, he learned that obeying was a costly thing. And there were many, many situations in which he had to learn that. And in times of great difficulty and need, there was always a temptation to a contrary course of action. And the scriptures are quite emphatic on this. The temptations of our Lord Jesus Christ were very real. We are prone sometimes to look at them from an overly theological point of view and say, well, he could not fall. He was impeccable. It was impossible for him to sin. But that is what uh, someone called in the past the view from the balcony, not the view from the road. It's the view from the headquarters. It's not the view from the battlefield. And the Lord Jesus Christ is in the battlefield. And in the battlefield, he experiences these temptations with acute strength. In fact, far more strength than we've ever experienced them. As someone once said, the only person who knows how heavy a weight is, is the person who actually lifts it. And only the Lord knows the real intensity of, of temptation because he never gave in to it. The person who gives in doesn't know just how strong its power is. But all the way through, it is emphasized that he is tempted, genuinely and really tempted. At the very beginning of his ministry, he is driven by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. And after 40 days of fasting, the devil calls on him to feed himself. If you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. The devil is not there really making him doubt that he is the son of God. What he's getting him to do is to misuse his power as the son of God. In other words, if in the sense of sins. If you are the son of God, well, since you are the son of God, if this is indeed who you are, well, do this. It lies within your power. It's not beyond you. Why shouldn't you eat? Why should the son of God ever be hungry? It doesn't hurt anybody to turn stones into bread. Do it and satisfy yourself. Whatever you think you have to do in this life, you can do it better on a full stomach than on an empty one. Later, of course, he says to him in the same temptation if you just move on to the dark side, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world and their glory, sparing you pain, sparing you grief, sparing you a cross, instant power at no cost to yourself. We are told that these were temptations. And we're told that they're temptations that Christ resisted by using the Word of God. So they were very real, and he fought them in faith. Then again, at the close of his ministry, you find him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he is faced with a choice whether to accept or reject the cup that he is now seeing for the first time, at least in all its contents. This is something hidden from his humanity, at least in all their extent up till now. But at the very point when he has to make a choice, he has shown the cup. And the contents of the cup make him sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. Um, that's not even drinking it. That is simply seeing it in advance. But he is shown the cup because it is at that particular point that he must either accept it or reject it. I'll come to this in a second because I I may have said before, I'm sure I have, I believe it very strongly, that Gethsemane is an extremely important point in the life of the Lord. A point at which he becomes the sin bearer voluntarily the point at which he agrees to undergo the sufferings and to experience the wrath of God without mitigation. So he must accept it or reject it. And at every point in the garden that seems to press in, even after he accepts the cup, not my will, but thy will be done. As I referred to last week, when Peter attempted to fight the soldiers who came to capture him, And the Lord stopped him and said, Do you think that I cannot now pray to my father? And he would send 12 legions of angels. But how then can the scripture be fulfilled? An alternative course of action. Do you think that I cannot now pray? And even on the cross at the very last minute, come down And save yourself. Come down and save yourself. Was that just the taunts of men or the temptation of the devil? I would say it was the temptation of the devil. So there is a conscious choice of obedience that the Lord makes at every point in time, in spite of a huge pressure to the contrary. So that's important. He learned obedience by the things that he suffers. And he obeys right up to the end. As Paul says to the Philippians, he became obedient even to the death of the cross. And of course, we can't forget that that does actually set an example for us too. It's one that we must always aspire to, even if we're never going to attain it in this life. But the fact that you're never going to attain it doesn't mean that you stop aspiring to it. The bar is set high and it remains high. And it doesn't matter how often you fall short. You don't move the bar. God doesn't move the bar. Be perfect, Jesus says, as your Father in heaven is perfect. What a command that is. What a command. To be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. And to be holy as our Father in heaven is holy. And uh, how can we forget how this same apostle writes his first letter and says, I am writing these things to you. He says, that you sin not. So that you might not sin. I know that he follows it immediately, thank God, by saying, if any man sin, we have an advocate. I know. But the fact that he says that doesn't take away from what he's just said before it. I am writing these things so that you sin not. In other words, even if you sin, see to it that you sin not. Keep the bar where it is. Now, we are very conscious. Even tonight, As we gather in holy things, that sin cleaves to us, cleaves to our hands and our feet and our heart and our head and our lips. But we are thankful that it never cleaved to him. When he said it is finished, he could say, I have now obeyed right up until the death of the cross. Because, of course, he says this expression immediately prior to expiring. And it includes the act of death itself. Of course, he couldn't say it after expiration. Therefore, he says it prior to it. But he wants us to know that the last act of exhalation, when he spirates the spirit towards the Father, is included in this too. Perfect obedience. I lay down my life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. So I have accomplished a perfect obedience obedience. That's the first thing. The second thing in this accomplishment is the accomplishment of a debt repayment, a full and complete debt repayment. For that, of course, it's necessary to remind ourselves that all his life long, Christ had a vicarious role to fulfill He didn't live for himself or die for himself. He was a public person. He was a public head. He was a second Adam. And just as the first Adam was on probation and a whole humanity resting on him, so the second Adam is in probation and a whole new humanity is resting on him as well. And the problem is they're all in debt. Every one of them are in debt. And so he has to repay that debt. And repaying that debt involves far more than living a perfect life. If he could live a perfect life and simply impute that to them, well, that would be fine. But what does that do for their debt? What does that do for the sin that they've all committed In all its blackness and hellishness against God. What does it do for that? Nothing. The imputation of a perfect life doesn't cancel out a debt. Something else is required to cancel out the debt. And that is the suffering of the wrath of God. Standing where they should have stood. Or where you should have stood. Maybe you're still standing in that. Maybe tonight it's true of you that you are now under the wrath of God and all that awaits is for that wrath to be poured out upon you in full fury, without mitigation and without end. But all of us deserve it anyway. But for him to rescue this new humanity meant a repayment of debt as well as living the perfect life. And that, to go back to what I said earlier, that is what makes Gethsemane such an important moment in the life of the Lord, when he agreed to take the burden of sin upon himself. Now, I'm conscious that most people think otherwise. And Therefore, what I say, I have to say humbly, because better men than me have thought otherwise. But I can only speak as I feel led and as I believe, but I believe with all my heart that it was at that moment that our Savior became the sin bearer. He was always designated to be the sin bearer, but there was a point of time at which he became that. The Old Testament ritual is very important. The animal is selected, the animal is observed, the animal is inspected, and when the time comes for the offering, the imputation takes place. There is the laying on of hands, and all the sins of the person who is offering the animal, all the sins are imputed to the animal. Of course, the animal is representative of Christ. And from the moment of imputation, that's a dead animal. All that awaits is to take that animal to the place of slaughter. Now, we must follow through that symbolism. If we are going to say, as most people say, I confess that, that Christ was a sin bearer from his birth. That means that all the sins of his people are on him as a child which means that the wrath of God is upon him as a child. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the wrath of God is upon the Lord Jesus Christ as a child? I don't believe that for a moment. He suffered in this world. Of course he did. He was the holy son of God in a sinful world. What else can you do but suffer? But there is a difference between those sufferings and the sufferings that take place from Calvary and beyond, from Gethsemane and beyond. Sometimes those sufferings are, for a particular reason, called the passive obedience of Christ. Now, some people have questioned uh, that descriptive term, and I understand why, but it does make an important point. It makes an important point that from Gethsemane onwards, Christ is yielding himself. Prior to that, nobody can touch him. Nobody can touch him. From that point onwards, nothing happens but wave upon wave of suffering and calamity. Why? Because he's taken the cup. He has assented to it. For three years, he's been inspected and examined, found spotless and clean. Therefore, the hands are upon him. And the burden of the sins of the people are laid upon him, and suffering must now be his portion. From Gethsemane onwards, I have no hesitation in saying that the wrath of God is upon Christ. The wrath of God is being poured out upon him from that point onwards. He is seized by his enemies. He is taken to his mock or sham trials. He is dealt with with severity. He is tortured, spat upon and that process just increases up to the hill of Calvary and into the darkness where there is a solemn transaction between the father and the one who is now a curse, which we cannot enter into. I've mentioned to you before the expression in the, in the ancient Greek liturgy, by thine unknown sufferings, O Lord deliver us. How true that is, thine unknown sufferings. Who can speak of what the Son of God Endured, But that, you see, is the point. Perfect obedience for him involved also the repayment of a debt. Not just a perfect life, but making atonement for our failure, for our sin. There's a debt being repaid. When the angel Gabriel came to Daniel... He told him that the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, would appear in 490 weeks. And when he would appear, he would make an end of sin, reconciliation for iniquity, and he would finish transgression. He accomplished that on the cross. A perfect obedience and a debt repayment. And it's a wonderful thing that the Savior has the full assurance of that before he leaves this world. The three-hour darkness on the cross is finished. The Father allows the light to break in and the light of his own countenance to come back. And Christ says, I've paid that debt now. I know that the single act remains, again, of exhaling my spirit And that is a part of the debt payment. That's true. Strictly speaking, that is part of the debt payment because he must die. But let me say again, he can't say this after his death. He must say it before. But he's paid the debt. He's passed through the darkness. All that remains is to die. And that is as nothing. Nothing compared to the hell through which he has passed. So I have accomplished a perfect obedience and I have accomplished a debt repayment. Third, and because of that, he can say that I have accomplished a righteousness. A righteousness. A righteousness made by himself and given by his father to you and to me. Now, I'm sure you know It's important to know that God requires a righteousness of all of us. And he requires that because he's righteous himself. It's not just something he decides to require. This is who he is. And the only people who can ever dwell with him are people who are righteous, even as he is righteous. And he tells us what that righteousness is like in his own law. It's in the Ten Commandments. That righteousness consists in loving himself with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. That is the righteousness that he requires. Absolute holiness and purity. There's only two ways that you can even try to get a hold of that. The first is by yourself. But I hope you've realised by now that you can't make it. Maybe you were deluded before by certain ideas as to how good a person you are and uh, how God is bound to receive you or whatever. Maybe you're still thinking like that. Maybe you're still, I don't mean to insult you, but maybe you're still that foolish. Maybe you've still learned so little about yourself that you think you're good enough for God. I put to you that you've seen that little of yourself. Man, your heart is a closed book to you if you really think that. You can't make it. Your own sin makes it impossible to have a righteousness that pleases God. Now, of course, what happens when, when you discover that to be the case is you try and change the rules. You try to relax the law, change the character of God. Or you just deceive yourself into thinking that your own attempts to keep the commandments are actually better than they really are. Or maybe you simply say something like this, well, the law doesn't change, fair enough, and I come short, fair enough, but God is merciful. And you cling on to that. And I'd, I'd like to chase you into a corner if you are trying to cling on to that, because um, you're kidding yourself about God's mercy. You think that God's mercy is a lawless thing, don't you? You think it's a lawless thing. In other words, you, you think that God says, oh, well, here's my holy law, which is a reflection of my holy character. And here are these people who have come short of it. But they know I'm merciful and I am merciful. So I'll just forget the fact that they've come short of it. I'll just leave it and I'll forget about it. Do you think that's how God's mercy operates? Do you think God's mercy is a lawless thing? That is, mercy somehow dispenses with law. Is that, is that how you view mercy? No, that's not how it works. Mercy respects law. Mercy demands that law be satisfied. It demands that. And God hunts down sin relentlessly. Every single sin in the universe is punished. It is either punished in the person who perpetrates it or punished in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not zapped out of existence. It's not overlooked or forgotten about. Not one sin in the universe is forgotten about by God. If it was, then why make such a fuss about the thing in the first place? Why not just forget about it? You might think you would like a God who could just forget about sin like that, but the strange thing is, I can understand why you would think that, but a God who is as unpredictable and changeable as that is, is no comfort at the end of the day. If he, if he can decide just like that to dispense with an old law, he can decide to dispense with mercy too when he's fed up with that, can't he? There's no rest in that. Every form of self righteousness tries to. Justify self before God. Criminals have it. Church people have it. Self-righteousness is what it is. Filthy rags. Nothing from yourself impresses God. Nothing. Do we understand that? Nothing from ourselves impresses God. Not a thing. But there is a second righteousness which you can get a hold of. The wonderful thing about this one is that it actually works. It's the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's sometimes useful to think about it as a fabric or a robe. A robe that he wove to cover you up in your sin and in your nakedness and in your shame. So that you can stand before God. And the point here is that he wove it. And he is conscious on the cross that he has finished weaving it. He's, he's woven the robe that he can give to all his sons and his daughters. And when Christ uh, gives you that robe. Um, God sees you in it. And he sees you in it forevermore. Sees you wearing it. Sometimes you forget you've got it. Sometimes you forget you've got it. But God always sees you in it. And because the robe is a robe that Christ wove himself by his own life, it is so identified with him. He sees Christ, if you pardon the language, when he sees you. When he sees you, he sees His own son. It is a perfect righteousness. And of course, the Apostle Paul spoke about it in his letter to the Philippians, where he looks forward to being found. The idea is that there is an examination, hunting down everybody. But on that day, he will be found, not, he says, having my own righteousness, which I tried, my own life, living it the way. I thought would please God. No, he says, not no. But the righteousness which is from God, through faith in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> if I was to use the expression to you, the righteousness of God. Let's say, let's say I asked you the question, "What is the righteousness of God?" You would probably instinctively think about the attribute of righteousness that God has. In other words, that God is Himself righteous. He is righteous. But for us who have tasted and seen that God is gracious, the expression righteousness of God should mean something else. This is what Luther understood. And when he saw it, his whole world changed. He realized that in the Bible, the expression the righteousness of God didn't mean God's righteousness. It meant the righteousness that God provided, which was the one that Christ wove in his perfect life, and in his debt repayment. These two threads, a perfect obedience and a repayment of a debt, made a beautiful garment, which is called the righteousness of God. And God imputes it to you. It's given to you. You wear it. You wear it tonight as a Christian. How beautifully dressed you are. How beautifully dressed. If you're dressed in that. So he accomplishes a perfect obedience a full debt repayment and a perfect righteousness. Fourth, he accomplishes a victory. He accomplishes a victory. Up until this point, say AD thirty, let's call it AD twenty well thirty two or thirty three, there is a cosmic battle being fought between the powers of darkness on the one hand and the powers of light on the other. Now, all the way through human history, right from the point of the fall in Genesis 3, there is a prophecy and a promise. That is that a decisive blow would be struck and that from the seed of the woman, a man-child would arrive who would crush the head of the serpent. And with that crushing of the head you have a death blow that's obviously what it is you you nobody survives a crushed head you can survive a crushed foot or a crushed arm but not a crushed head the point is that when this man child arrives with his foot he will crush the head of the serpent now the same promise told us that the serpent would damage his foot uh, but his foot would crush the serpent's head But right up until this point on the cross, that decisive blow of victory had not been struck. And it's only when he expires on the cross that he defeats the devil, the powers, and the principalities. I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to me. In connection with that, he says, now is the prince of this world cast out. You may remember a few months back, we looked at that text in detail. Now is the judgment of this world, Jesus says. And in saying that, he's speaking about the cross. He's saying that in the last few days of his life. Now is the judgment of this world. The word judgment there in the Greek uh, crisis is to be understood in its original signification. A point um, in history when everything changes. An old order passes away and a new order comes in. We use the word crisis a, a little more loosely now, uh, just when something significant happens. But the word crisis there is to be understood in its original signification. Now is the crisis point in world history, Christ says now is the prince of this world cast out from that position as as the one who holds sway over the nations of the earth. Now is he cast out. And I, I, as the new prince, Messiah the prince, I, if I am lifted up on the cross, in the resurrection, in the ascension, I, if I am lifted up and exalted, I will draw all men unto myself. The cross is victory. The putting of the stake into the skull, calvarium. Calvary is the place of the skull, Golgotha. Is is there not symbolism in that? When when the cross is put into the ground, is is there not a picture there, a a vivid picture of the crushing of the head of the serpent? even by the very weapon of his humiliation and his shame? Was it it not Hugh Martin who said that that he took the cross and turned it into a sword? At that very point, victory is won. It's interesting that even Paul says that the sins that had been forgiven people prior to that point were only provisionally forgiven. Now, that may sound a a rather strange thing to say, but in Romans 3 and verse 25, when Paul is speaking about the cross and he's speaking about Christ, he says, He says of Christ that whom God set forth, displayed as a propitiation, a wrath deflector, by his blood to demonstrate. Now, listen to this God through the cross is. Quote, demonstrating his own righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Previous to what? Previous to the cross. Uh, The sins of Abraham, the sins of Isaac, the sins of Jacob, the sins of Moses, the sins of David. God in his forbearance had passed over these sins, now to demonstrate at this present time, that's the time of the cross, his righteousness, that he might be just and seem to be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, what that's saying, well, at least I can't get any other meaning out of them than this that the forgiveness that all these people received was provisional because the actual act that was saving them had not yet been accomplished. Now, I know, I know that it would be accomplished. I know that it was absolutely set in stone. It was written in the book. It was in the eternal decree, and it was going to happen. And it's certainly on the basis of that That they were all in glory, all these people. But nonetheless, Paul draws attention to the fact that God had passed over their sins in their forbearance. And now he is seen in the cross to be just and the justifier of those people. That's when the victory was won. And the whole host of heaven knew that themselves. The head was crushed. So he accomplished a victory. And last of all, he accomplished a deliverance. Because the defeat of Satan is our deliverance. We sang there in the psalm, in Psalm 68, verse 18, that he led captivity captive and received gifts for men. Paul quotes it in Ephesians 4. Uh, It's quite difficult to tell, in a way, when you're reading the psalm or singing it, that it's about Christ's ascension, but that's emphatically what it's about. When the psalmist says that he ascended up on high and led captivity captive, Paul tells us that is a reference to God's ascent, to Christ's ascent to heaven, leading captivity captive. Uh, There is a debate about who the captives are. But I think the meaning is this, that we were in captivity. We were in captivity to sin, to Satan, and to death. And because of what Christ accomplished, he has delivered us from that. He destroyed him who had the power of death over us, that is the devil, Hebrews 2.14. And he has made the captivity his own captives. He led captivity captive. They were captives to sin, death, and Satan. Now they are captives to himself. And you may say, oh, well, is that a good way to speak of us as being captives to Christ? Well, why not? Paul speaks of himself as a bond servant. And uh, I'm happy to think of myself as a bond servant. Um. What if instead of speaking of yourself as a captive, let's say you described yourself as captivated. Let's say you were captivated by the love of Christ, captivated by the glory of Christ, captivated by the dignity and the majesty of Christ, captivated by his forgiving, loving and gentle and meek spirit. Are you captivated by all these things? You are. Well, you're a captive then. You're a willing captive. You'll be glad. You're glad to be in your master's service. Delivered from a a slavish bondage and into something quite different. When we read the passage earlier on about uh, the transfiguration, when Christ was on the Mount of Transfiguration, you'll remember that Moses and Elijah appeared with him. Now, there were reasons why the Lord um, was passing through a darkness at that point, but God sent these two messengers from heaven, not angels. Uh, there's a reason why he didn't send angels at this point. Uh, what God sent at this point were two specimens of redeemed humanity, already redeemed humanity, and he sent Moses and Elijah who we are told spoke with him of the exodus that he would accomplish, finish, accomplish in Jerusalem. The exodus, that's the Greek word. It's translated decease. But um, I've sometimes wondered at that translation, really. Maybe it's one of these instances where the word might have been better just kept as it is in the Greek, an exodus. After all, we know what the word exodus means. They spoke with him of the exodus which he would accomplish in Jerusalem. Now, Moses was well well qualified to speak about an exodus because he had led one himself. He he had gone into Egypt where the people of God were groaning and in bondage. Um, And by the grace of God, at last they recognized him as their deliverer. And he delivered his captivity, and he took them captive. They were told that they were baptized into Moses' leadership as they went through the Red Sea. They were united with him in a kind of baptism. And, of course, they were delivered into, into the liberty of God's people. Well, they're well qualified in that way to speak with the Lord Jesus Christ, who is himself delivering captivity into captivity to himself. And that's why at the very point of his death, there there are signs of deliverance. For example, the earthquake. The the earthquakes because of the magnitude again of what is happening. If you can pardon the expression, there is a a seismic event going on. And at this point, the rocks open. And we're told by Matthew that the graves of many of the Lord's people shattered open at that quake, at the precise point in time at which our Lord expired. Why? Well, because the tomb is not just a sign of our death, but it's a sign of our bondage. We are entombed to sin and entombed to death and entombed in hell. But it's all open. The graves are open. Everything is open because death can't hold us just as death could not hold him. And so the Lord Jesus Christ obtains a deliverance. And uh, I mentioned in the morning, it's just worth highlighting and closing that our Lord, when he utters this expression, lifts his head to do so. Now, Christ is ready to expire and his weakness is profound. I mean, crucifixion is well known for just draining the life out of you in in every single way, And, and there is just not an ounce of strength left in people who are ready to expire, just not an ounce ordinarily. Certainly nothing to enable you to shout, and certainly nothing to enable you to lift your head up, Because the state of collapse in the lungs and in the body and the state of the heart means that the head is is just down and it's down for good. But lo and behold, as it were from nowhere, he lifts his head. Why does he lift his head and how does he do it? Well, I think the psalm gives us an insight into that. He shall drink of the brook by the way and he shall lift up the head. By reciting the psalm, the Lord is effectively drinking from the brook, by the way. He is receiving the strength of his father. He has been crucified in weakness. he leaves the world in strength. And the Lord imparts strength. I mean, Samson famously got strength for a final act of triumph over the enemies of the cross. Well, the Lord receives the same. He receives this strength... And therefore, having drunk of the brook, by the way, he lifts up his head in triumph. And he says, I have accomplished it. I've accomplished my life. I've accomplished a perfect obedience. I have accomplished a full debt repayment. I have accomplished a perfect righteousness, which is imputable. I have accomplished a victory. And I have accomplished the deliverance of all my people from sin and from death and from hell. And I have done that alone. And, of course, as I mentioned, Psalm 22 in the morning closes with all God's people down through the ages saying that very thing. Perhaps you can turn to the psalm. We're just going to sing it in conclusion anyway. Just turn to it in your psalm book in Psalm 22, he looks forward on the cross here to, to what's going to happen. And in the last two verses, he, he says this, a seed shall serve as due to him. That's page 229. And, and think of him, friends, on the cross, saying this. Think of him saying this just moments before he expires. A seed shall serve as due to him unto the Lord. It shall be for a generation. That's living generations reckoned in every age. They shall come. Yes, they shall come into being. That's not what he means, but they shall come to him. And they shall declare the Messiah's truth and righteousness unto a people yet unborn. Tetelestai, he has done it, he has finished it. So that puts the declaration onto us. It's your duty and mine to declare it to each other and to declare it to to the world to come. And what better way to declare it than to sing it? As we do tonight, this is one of the great blessings of singing the words that he wrote And the words that he prayed and the words that he sang. Let's declare to each other that he has finished it. So we'll sing the last uh, three stanzas of the psalm and we sing to the tune Morven. Let's stand to sing.
1: Earth's fat ones eat and worship shall. All who to dust descend shall bow to Him. No. to